right? How do, we, how do we stand up for what is right? In other words, how do we confront well? Yes? How do we confront in the right way? You know, like sometimes we've got to confront our kids, sometimes we've got to confront our boss, sometimes we've got to confront people. So how do we stand up for the right things in the right way? Now, I'm really a little bit nervous about doing this message this morning because quite honestly, some of you if you're anything like me, are really good at doing this the wrong way. Yes? In fact, some of you love confrontation so much that if I don't get this message quite right, you could get it really wrong, and that would be like me giving you a loaded gun and a bottle of whiskey and letting you go for it. Because some of you are really love the confrontation. And so I want to be careful about how we do this because some people are overly confrontational, yes? We don't, don't elbow the person next to you. Some of us are overly confrontational and then some of us are not confrontational at all. A lot of you are really passive. So let me ask you this morning, how many here this morning are really passive? You don't like confrontation at all. Wow, you put your hands up. I was thinking you're so passive, your hand would stay down. How many here then are like, man, I'm really comfortable with confrontation and I, I actually have no problem with confrontation, I'm really good at it. See, there's two hands going up from those people because that's the kind of people that they are. So there's one hand that goes up like, I confront, in a big way, they love it, yes? <laughs> there are two types of confrontational extremes that we have to be aware of. One extreme when it comes to confrontation is some are unwilling to confront. You, you actually cannot live a life where you're unwilling to confront stuff because here's the thing, what you tolerate, you allow. A lot of people complain about things that are happening in their life, but it's because you've tolerated it, so now you've allowed it. And so you actually can't just sit back and go, well, it's none of my business. I'm going to let live, you know, just just... You know, live and let live, isn't that how we say it? Or who am I to judge? Yes? We're too non-confrontational at times, and we actually don't help things move forward, or we don't help our kids move forward. Then the other extreme when it comes to confrontation is that some confront unlovingly. They're what I call drive-by confronters. They don't know you. They have no context to your situation. They just walk past you, bang, 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 as they walk past with their confrontation. Does anybody know a drive-by confronter in their world? I noticed none of the husbands put their hands up. They were too scared. They're the kind of people that are like, it is my God-given right to tell everybody else where they're going wrong. They are the kings of social and queens of social media. They don't know who the person is. They have no context for what the person just said. They just tap out their response, bang, 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 as they go past and correct everyone. And they think it's a God-given right because they are always right and you are always wrong. Sounds like a teenager, doesn't it? All the youth have now turned off. They all hate me. And so when we have these two extremes of people who refuse to confront and people that confront unlivingly, 
We create problems in our world and we really need to seek God's wisdom for how do we do this right? How do we confront in the right way, in the right time? Yes? When we first got married, I love my wife dearly. I really do. But wanting to have deep and meaningful conversations at 11.30 at night when my head has hit the pillow is not the right time because I'm about to go to sleep. Now, without any guys getting in trouble this morning, you can just give me a wink if you know what I'm talking about. Why is it, wives, that you wait until bedtime to bring up something that is a three or four hour discussion because I made this promise to Trinity when we got married that I'd never go to sleep without resolving a conflict. As the Bible says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Which then created a problem of being up sometimes to three or four o'clock in the morning resolving an issue that could have been brought up at 5 p.m. but was brought up at 11.30 p.m. I have found healing for this and I have moved on. But it's not just the right thing to say, it's the right time to say it and the right season to do it. Because, we need to understand this, because there will be times for all of you that God will ask you to step into someone's life and intervene because you love them. As parents, you may have a child that's making bad decisions. I don't know what that's like. My children are perfect in every which way. They are a splitting image of their father and they are perfect human beings. But if you have a child that's making some bad decisions, parents, you need to know how to do this because we need to know as parents the right time to step in, yes, because if you get the wrong time, it just it's a disaster so that you don't push too hard, that they disconnect from you. Are you hearing me? That we don't push them away, but that we bring them back into the things of God. Or maybe you know someone who is a judgmental pain in the backside. You know, Mr. and Mrs. Negative, just judgmental people. You've got to learn how do I... Do this in the right way, at the right time, in the right season, where you just say, hey, hey, hold on a sec. That's just not healthy for you. Let alone the people that you're doing that to, but for you it's not healthy to live that way. So how, how do we do these things? Or maybe, maybe you have a friend that has three cats, and they're thinking about getting a fourth cat. For the love of God, you need to know how to say to them, stay at three cats. That was a joke, especially if they're single. Because friends don't let friends have four cats, all right? All the cat lovers now hate me, the youth hate me, the cat lovers. So far, so good. 50% of people are turned off. The thing is, is that we all have to stand up at certain times for the right thing. And we started talking about last week about Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar, and we understand how King Nebuchadnezzar was an incredibly evil king. And, and we're picking up the story in chapter 4, and we're picking up the story where just before this, 
that God has given Nebuchadnezzar a really crazy dream. He gave him a dream that so freaked him out and so disturbed him that he couldn't sleep. He was unable to sleep. And so what he does is he calls his his musicians and his dream interpreters, and he tells them what the dream is, and all of them turn around and say, I I don't know what that means. Um, You'll have to ask someone else. Now, you have to understand that these men at that time, they knew what the dream meant. They were just too scared to tell him what the dream meant because one, back in those days, if you brought the king bad news, he'd usually have you killed. So it's not that they couldn't interpret the dream. They just were unwilling to because they were scared that he would take their life. So like, I, I don't know what it means. Ask someone else. So he asked Daniel. Now, Daniel, last time when we talked about him last week, was about 15 years of age. Now Daniel is in his 40s. And Daniel has already built decades of relationship with the king. He has already uh, interpreted some dreams for the king before. And so he comes to Daniel and he basically says to Daniel, uh, this is my dream. I want you to interpret it for me. And Daniel, like them, was a little bit hesitant, but instead of just saying, I have no idea what it means, ask someone else, because they were wusses. Daniel decides to interpret the dream. So the king says to him, this was my dream. My dream was about a giant tree that provided, that reached up towards the heavens and it provided branches and leaves that gave so much shade that it was a blessing for all the people. And all the animals lived in the tree and the fruit provided for many people. But then... A holy one from heaven shouted, cut down the tree and only leave a stump so that everyone will know that God, the most high God, rules over all the nations of the earth. Now, as I said, even a two-year-old could interpret that dream. We understand what God is saying, but all his musicians and what it means. Uh, ask somebody else. And so he asked Daniel. Now you can imagine Daniel goes a little bit quiet here for a moment because he realizes what the dream is about. And I'm not really sure that Daniel was overly excited about letting the king know what the dream was about. But we're going to watch as we go through this story how Daniel stands up to this evil, all-powerful king and tries to help him, point him in the right direction by first of all, telling him what the dream means. Now, he starts off by saying this, O king, I wish this dream was about your enemies and not about you. I really wish that this dream was not about you, but it was about your enemies. Because what Daniel is trying to show is that he genuinely, actually cares for the king and he wishes it was not true. And we start in Daniel 4.22, where he says this, The tree, your majesty, is you. For you have grown strong and great, and your greatness reaches up to the heaven, and you rule to the ends of the earth. Good start. The king will be feeling good about that, right? Until we come to verse 25 and 26. This is what the dream means. Your majesty And what the Most High God has declared will happen 
to my lord the king. You will be driven from human society and you will live in the fields with the wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow and you will be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven years of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the most high rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. But the stump and the roots of the tree were left in the ground. This means that you will receive your kingdom back again when you have learned that heaven rules. How many people think, if I was Daniel, stage left, get out of here, you know? Like, this is not good news for the king. The thing I love about Daniel is he could have just interpreted the dream and then left, but he didn't stop there. Daniel didn't stop there. He had the courage to do something that literally risked his life. He stood up to the king, not because he was proud of himself, not because he was arrogant, not because he wanted to correct the king, and not because he thought that he was better than the king. He stood up to the king because he loved the king. Remember, he started off by saying, I wish this was not about you. And he wanted the king to know the goodness of God. So he goes continues on in verse 27 by saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then, perhaps then you will continue to prosper. At any time, that you and I are going to bring loving correction, which is the only right kind of correction. Basically, what we're going to see here in Daniel is what we are going to say. We are going to do this the right way. He's He's saying to him, stop sinning and do what is right. In other words, stop being so harsh. Stop disrespecting people. Please Please hear my advice and do what is right. Second thing, break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Please stop oppressing people. Be a blessing to the people you serve in the kingdom. Be merciful to the poor. And please, perhaps then if you do these things, you'll continue to prosper. In other words, he's saying to him, please do what is right. Please. Because I want for you what God wants for you. Because perhaps he'll see that and then he won't do what he says that he's going. I want for you what God wants for you. I, I want you to be blessed, O King. Please, please do the right thing. Please. You see, every single one of us, if we're part of this church community or part of the Christian community, doesn't even have to be people inside of the church, but we, we generally are doing life together. We're encouraging one another. We're loving one another. We're supporting one another. We're pl- praying for one another, yes? So if that is the case, there's going to be a time when God is going to call you to stand up to someone else who is making wrong decisions to help them back onto God's path. That's the key. God's path, not your path. Just 
in the same way that there will be people that God calls to talk to you about getting you back onto the right path. If we're going to live in Christian community, that's what's going to happen. And whenever God calls you to be the one to stand up to someone else, it's important that we prayerfully consider our approach and what we're going to do. And the cool thing is, God in Galatians chapter 6 gives us a way to do it. How many people are excited about that? Galatians 6, 1 says this, it says, Dear brothers and sisters, if any, if another believer is overcome by some sin, what does it say? You who are godly should what? Gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. Gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. Gently and humbly says this. It says, I'm no better than you. It says, I want to help you get back to the right path because you're in a place that could end up hurting you and I care about you. It's, it's not about what they're doing wrong. It's about getting them back into a place where they're not going to get hurt because I love you and I care about you. I am not better than you. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how often I've had conversations with certain family members who will remain anonymous, where you try to explain to them that a particular behavior is not leading them in the right direction, and usually the response is what? Well, what about you? Yes? What about you? This is not what about you. This is about if somebody comes in a gently and humbling way that you be gentle and humble enough to hear what they say because they're not saying it because they're trying to correct you. They're saying it because they love you. Yes? It goes on in Galatians, says, Dear brothers and sisters, if any believer is overcome by sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back into the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. If you think you are too important to help someone else, to help someone, you are only fooling yourself. You are not that important. I just love how the Bible puts things sometimes. It says here, be careful not to do what? Be careful not to what? Come on, talk back to me. To fall into the same temptation yourself. Be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Be careful that you are not pointing out something in somebody else's life that is actually something that you need to sort out in your own life. I'll say this now and I'll say it again later. Accusation usually flows from a guilty conscience. The very thing that people accuse you of is usually the very thing that they struggle with. Are you with me this morning? 
But if we're going to confront people and confront them well and confront them the way that the Bible teaches us to confront people, we're going to pray two prayers that will help us. The first prayer that you're going to pray is this, God, help us to confront with the goal of restoration. In fact, the Bible says this, that Jesus has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Do you know what reconciliation means, the literal word reconciliation? It means not to hold somebody's sin against them. It means not to hold somebody's sin against them. The reason why we get confrontation so wrong is because we like to hold up the wrong that they've done and hold that up to them. That's not our job. Our job is to reconcile people, to bring them back to God's original intent. God is the one that convicts people of sin. Our job is to help them be restored. That's why the Bible says that when we confess our sins to one another, that if we pray for each other, we will be healed. Our job is not to point out what they have done wrong. Our job is to see them restored. So our our purpose in all confrontation is for restoration. So when people come up to you and they do this, because this is what happens, I need to tell you this in love. If they have to say that it's in love, it generally is not in love. The other week when you said that, you really hurt me. And now I'm really hurt by you. How is that in love, for starters? And how is that reconciliationary? All you've done is dumped your issue on them. And in most cases, the problem that you got offended is because of the filters that you were filtering everything through because of your past and because of your life, that when somebody says something to you, you filter it through your past hurts and pains, and so then you decide that what they really said was that you're ugly when what they said was, I don't like your shoes. Because you will filter it through your filters. Come on. And then you go and dump it on that person, and you go, oh, I did the biblical thing. No, you didn't. You didn't. You just got your offense off your chest and then loaded them up with it. There's no restoration in any of that. That's just you unloading. So the Bible teaches us that when we confront someone, it is always with the goal of restoration because we love the person, yes? That's why we talk to them because we want to see them back onto the right path. If you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. We never confront because we are right. We only confront to help someone else be right with God. We don't confront people because I'm right. We confront people because we want them to be right with God. It's not about you. You're not that important. It's about them and being right with God, not being right with you. Are you hearing me this morning? And that is the only reason we ever confront. We only ever, ever confront people because we love them and we want to see them right with God. It's not about you and your offense. In fact, the Bible says that you need to forgive those that have hurt you. Right? We've done offense in this church before. We've preached on it. And the Bible says this, that when you hold an offense against someone, Bible says this, that you are now in the snare of the devil. And that word snare 
of the devil basically means this. You are now doing the devil's work when you hold an offense. In other words, when you get offended and you hold on to it, you are now under the influence and the direction of the devil, not of God. Your job is to deal with the offense because the Bible says this, offenses will happen. So welcome to the world. You will be offended. In fact, I will offend you from time to time because I'm not perfect. I know I look pretty darn close, but I'm not. Your job is that you forgive and you deal with the offense, but we don't bring the offense to people to say, I'm right and you're wrong. We only ever correct people with the thought of restoration because we want to see them right with God. And that is our only reason why we should ever do it. Are you here with me today? It says, gently and humbly help that person back on the right path. You see, the approach that you take matters. The approach that you take matters. If you are angry with your kids, don't try and correct them while you're angry. Because it won't work. Yes? People sending anonymous letters. Ignore them. Their approach doesn't earn the right to engage with your heart. We had somebody put an anonymous letter into the offering one week here at church. Saying that because we close the curtains and darken the room, that what we're doing is we're inviting the devil into the church. And if we would open the curtains and let the light of Jesus shine in, then we would see lives transformed. I wish it wasn't anonymous, because then I could sit down the person and go to them, Let, when I open these curtains, watch, the light that comes in is called sunlight. Not God light, sunlight. And what the Bible teaches is that you're a city on a hill. You are the light of the world. The sunlight that you are saying that needs to be in the church is meant to come from within you not outside the window. And based on your anonymous letter, I would suggest that maybe the darkness in the room is reflecting the darkness in your heart. But I can't say that because it was anonymous. (laughs) If you ever get upset with anything about me and you think that sending an anonymous letter is going to get a response... Friend, I file anonymous letters in one place called File 13. It's the rubbish bin, and that's where it goes. Because public honor always leads to private influence. If you can't treat someone with honor, which means to hold them in value by talking to them, then you have no influence. Because influence comes from relationship. There's always got to be a connection before you can bring a correction. And remember, correction always points people into their future, never condemns them for their past. That's judgmental. The Bible says there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. When you all you ever do is talk to someone about all the past mistakes they made, you are sealing them in their past. But Jesus never talks that way. Even the woman caught in adultery said, where are your accusers? I don't accuse you. Now go and sin no more. He didn't dwell on her mistakes. He said, in the future, don't do that again. Go for it. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, I know the plans that I have for you. I hope in a future. He doesn't say, I know everything you did in your past. Come on. 
Our goal in correction is to get people right with God, not to point out their failures. I am really getting behind in my notes. It is a loving, gentle, and humble confrontation from a friend that helped me get back on the right path. When I get off track, it's the loving, gentle confrontation of a friend that gets me back on track. I can remember once going for a walk with Trinity just down the hill here when I was in a bad way. And I remember her saying to me, honey, I love you. God's got great plans for your life. But if you don't sort this stuff out, I'm leaving the church. Is that a little bit too real for you? And I knew as she left, that puts me in a predicament, doesn't it? But she was right. This had gone on long enough. Come on, man. Snap yourself out of it. There's been times where where lovingly and gently people that are friends have had to come and speak into my life. And I am all good with that because they come with a heart of says, we want to get you back on the right path, not point out all the faults that you've made. Are you with me this morning? We don't need drive-by confrontation. We don't need angry people on social media people that have no relationship with. It's completely and totally ineffective. It's in a context of relationship where we're trying to help bring restoration that we're able to speak into people's lives. And that's why I'm such a big believer about every single person being part of a connect group. Because when you're part of a connect group, you get to build relationships with people, with one another, that you can get to the stage where there's trust built, there's intimacy built. And then as you share stuff that's going on in your world, the Bible says that you can pray for each other and be healed. Or you can share, hey man, when early on in our marriage, yeah, we went for a similar thing and this happened and that happened. And all of a sudden, because we're doing life together in relationship that is a trusted relationship where we know that we're safe, all of a sudden our marriages get better and our families get better and our workplace gets better because we're doing life together. So the prayer is, God, when we confront, help us to confront with the goal of restoration. The next thing is, the second prayer that you're going to pray is, God, help me to confront with caution. Help me confront with caution. It says there, it says this, it says, and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. When you're confronting other people, there is a vulnerability in you to be filled with pride. Where you can turn around and go, well, you better be thanking God that I'm here. <laughs> because <laughs> I'm here to save you from the pit of hell, friend. And if you keep him going that way, you're going to be in big trouble. But if you live your life how I live my life, if you copy me and live like me, then you'll live in righteousness, freedom, for the good of our God. Thank God I'm in your life. But that's how some people can be, and we don't want that, do we? We don't want that. We need to be very careful. We need to be very careful that while we're trying to pick the speck out of somebody else's eye, we're not whacking them in the side of the head with the whopping big plank sticking out of our eye. I've had some people come and, and criticize me over some things, and while they're trying to pick the speck out of my eye, I'm spending the whole time ducking, making sure I don't get hit in the head with their plank. People have said things to me like, oh, you just want to destroy the church. 
Yes, that's what I want to do. I want to wreck the church so I have no job, no income. And nobody ever wants to employ me again to be a pastor. That is my goal. How many people think that if I wreck the church that God's going to sit up and have a go, well done, good and faithful servant. What a stupid thought that someone would say that. doesn't mean I'm always going to get everything right, but I'm trying to do my best based on what God is telling me. And sometimes I'll get things wrong, and you know what? That's okay, because failure isn't final. And you learn more from your failures than you do from your successes. Let's move on before I get onto a hobby horse here. You've got to make sure that it's not your guilty conscience. Yes? That's why it says, gently and humbly. If you ever bring, lovingly bring correction, then you're really saying, is that I'm not higher than you. I am not better than you. I'm not higher than you. Because you know what? We are all lower than God. We are all lower than God. And when we realize that we are lower than God, then we understand that our job is to try and lift everybody up. There's one thing that I hate about New Zealand culture is tall poppy syndrome, where we just want to pull people down to our level. But the scripture teaches us that we're meant to go from glory to glory and strength to strength. The scripture says that the prophets and the apostles are the foundation of the church, that everything else stands on. Our job is actually to lift people. There's a biblical principle in scripture that the older generation should serve the younger, not because the younger generation is better than the older generation, but because the older generation wants to train the younger generation in such a way that it stands on the shoulders of the generation that was before it so it goes further. Our job in the kingdom is to lift people up, never to pull people down. And when we understand that we are all lower than Christ, then our job will be to try and lift people so that they get closer to him in the right way, in the right season, we will get the right result. I hate it when Christians are only ever known for what they're against. I think that Christians should be known for what we're for. We're for God's love. We're for God's forgiveness. We're for God to do something in your life, that God can take you out of the miry clay and make something significant of you. Yes, I understand that there's sin in the world, but the Bible says this, that once you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you of it. So why do we then dwell on it? Shouldn't we do what Jesus does, which is always talking about destiny, the woman at the well who's with a man who is not her husband, and it's the sixth one she's been with. He doesn't dwell on what she is doing. He starts to speak destiny into her, and then she finds him, and then she brings her whole entire village out to meet him, and a whole entire village comes to Christ. Why? Because he speaks destiny. We need to lift people not reduce people. We are not looking to correct others. We are looking to help one another get closer to God. And that's what we're called to do. And that's what Daniel did. He said, you know, he's like, oh, King, I, I love you. I wish this dream didn't apply to you. I wish it was for your enemies, but it's not. It does apply to you. Here's what it means. And I humbly tell you, please accept my advice, stop sinning and do what is right. Because if you do that, maybe you will continue to prosper. Maybe God will continue to bless you. 
So he's coming from this position of, I love you, I care about you, I want you to get back in right relationship with God. This is not about what you've done wrong. This is about getting you back on the right path. And he shares this in the right way, at the right time, in the right season. And what does King Nebuchadnezzar do? Does he turn around and say, oh, you're right, Daniel, forgive me, I was wrong. Let's take communion and sing Our God Reigns. No, King Nebuchadnezzar does nothing. And he continues on in his evil ways. For another seven horrible years, the scripture teaches us. And some of you are going to obey the prompting that God of the Holy Spirit has placed in you. And some of you are going to go and you're going to confront people and then you're going to do it in a right way. Not in an arrogant way, not in a rude way, not in a bad way, but in the right way. You're going to do it in the right thing, in a very loving, confronting, right way. And sometimes those people that you confront are going to turn and go, thank you, glory to Jesus. And then other times they aren't. Other times they're going to turn around and go, well, that's your opinion, but you. Now, here's the thing. You are not responsible for the person's response to the correction. I'm not responsible for the behavior of somebody. They are responsible. What I am responsible for is to be obedient to what Christ has told me to do and to do it right And trust God with the results. And Daniel confronted the king. And for seven years, the king just was more horrible than it had ever been before, even though it was in his face about what God was was saying. And you know what the crazy thing is? Seven years down the track, when Daniel had probably lost hope that King Nebuchadnezzar would turn to God, seven years down the track, And verse 34 says, after this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, my sanity returned, and I praised and worshipped the Most High and honoured the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting and his kingdom is eternal. Seven years later, the king repents of his sin and turns to God and God is glorified because he worked through Daniel, someone who had the courage to stand up to the king that had the power to take his life. But he did it right. Sometimes you're going to have to take a risk and it can be messy And it can be ugly. And in your marriage, sometimes you're going to have to take a risk and say, you know what? I've been a doormat for way too long. You've been treating me with disrespect and I love you. Too much to let this continue. So I want us to get some counseling and get some help because this is not the marriage that God intended for you and I. child is going in the wrong way and you say listen I love you too much not to say something to you because I made mistakes when I was your age and I don't want you to make the same mistakes and go through the same trauma and the same turmoil that I went through would you please listen to me I want to help you with some solid advice that will bring you in the right direction and parents can I say this 
Don't sugarcoat the mistakes you made. Be honest. Be honest. Because if I know one thing about my kids, they can read bullcrap from a mile away. Kids know when you're being genuine and when you're not being genuine. Don't be afraid to share the mistakes you've made to save them from making the same ones. You're not going to win your child's heart over by being prideful about your past. But you will win their heart over by saying to them, hey, I'm not excited about the mistakes I made, but these are the mistakes I made. And I, I, and I just see in you that you're starting to go down the same road. And I don't want that for you. I don't want that for you because I love you. And it's not the path that God has for you. Will you, will you please listen to my advice? Because I want you back on the right path of Jesus. It's not about what they've done. It's about getting them back on the right path. And you know what will happen when the Holy Spirit connects in your heart and works through you in God's perfect timing, in God's perfect way? I believe for you that you're going to gently and humbly help people get back on the right path. Not because we're right. Not because we're right. And they are wrong. Not because we're right and they are wrong, but it's our desire to get them right with God. It's our desire that when we open up with others, we want to help them get right with God. It's not about being right and it's not about them being wrong. It's about them being right with God because we want to see heaven populated. I think, I think the church worldwide for too many years, and when I say too many years, I don't mean a couple of years, I'm meaning for decades, hundreds of years, has got this so wrong. Because we spend all our time jumping up and down about this, that, and the other thing. That's why we have people that are not Christians. They come into our car park, and I've heard them literally say this. Oh, God hasn't struck me dead yet because they're in a church car park. What message has the church sent to the world, to the unsaved? That somehow God is some sort of a God that waits for you to step onto the property of a church and then brings up all the sin you've done and kills you for it. Where has the church got the message of for God so loved the world that he sent his only son not to condemn the world but to save the world? How have we got this so wrong for so long that the world thinks that the church hates them that the world thinks that the Muslim world is more, in, more accepting of them than we are. But we're not the ones going around murdering people because they're homosexuals. The church is a strictly inclusive of everybody, whether they're a sinner or whether they're not. That's why the disciples belonged before they believed. They hung around with Jesus for two years, following him as their disciples before they even believed in him.
It wasn't until two years in that Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. What has the church done so badly for so long that the world thinks that this is a place that hates them? When my Bible shows that God is a God that loves them, that died on the cross for them, even when they didn't know him, even when they were haters of God, he gave his life for them. God is a God that's all about restoring, not about telling them where they've gone wrong, but telling them where he's gone right. That I died on the cross for your sins so you don't have to. That I took the burden of all of that so you don't have to. That my back was ripped to pieces with a cat of nine tails which exposed my bones and ripped my flesh off so that you could have healing so you don't have to suffer with cancer or all those things that are going, I did all of this for you because I love you. Not once does he turn around and say to the sinner, you filthy sinner, what he did do to all the religious people is he said it to them. He said to all the Pharisees and the Sadducees, how dare you? You should know better. It was the sinners and the prostitutes and the tax collectors that hung out with Jesus. The religious people didn't like him. Why? Because he wasn't about rules. He was about relationship. And relational things are always restorative, never judgmental, never pointing out the wrongs of the person, but pointing out what Christ did right for them. He was all about getting us back into right relationship. That's why the prodigal son, when he came back from his wild living, not once did the father talk to him about how he had been living. All he did is he ran to him and he embraced him and he restored him by putting the ring back on his finger and the robe over his shoulders and giving him sandals to wear and then he killed the fatted calf and he had a party. Why? Because God doesn't care about where you have been. He only cares about where you are going. And as Christians, friend, when we confront people, it's not about where they've been. It's about where are they going. And we want them in right relation. Not, it's not about me being right. It's not about them being wrong. It's about them getting right with Jesus. And we only ever confront people. We only ever bring correction to get them back in relationship with him. Not because they've hurt you or upset you. you just got to deal with that. You've got to forgive. And I know in the Scripture it says if somebody upsets you, go to them, talk to them. And you can do that as well, but you do it in the right way. Not You don't go and talk to them because they need to know how much they hurt me. You don't go and talk to them because you're worried and you love them and you feel like they're out of the pathway that God has for them. It's not about you feeling better. It's about them being right with God. And I just believe for you and for I that the best thing we could ever do for our families, the best thing we could ever do for our workplaces, the best thing we could ever do for our schools, the best thing we could ever do for our community, the best thing we could ever do for every unsaved person that walks the face of the planet is to have the attitude of saying, I love you. I think God's got a great plan for your life. But right now, man, I would you just take some advice? I wish 
that this wasn't for you, O king. I wish this was for your enemies, but this is actually about you. But I'm not judging you for what you've done. I'm just pleading with you. Would you, would you listen to my voice? Because I don't want you to suffer. I want you to be right 